grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, maybe if you've been attending my Bible class, you'll especially appreciate the intro to today's sermon. To put in a shameless plug for my 1042 adult Sunday school class, we've been going through St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, we just got to the part where Paul is talking about living the holy life, which, as it turns out, is not always all that holy as we struggle ourselves to live it out. The big term for living the holy Christian life is sanctification. Sanctification, the lifelong process by which the Holy Spirit works in the believer's experience to put to death the sinful old man and to quicken or strengthen the new man fashioned in the very image of Jesus Christ himself. Sanctification. Mind you, living a holy life was not always understood in these Christ-friendly terms, nor was it always credited to the Holy Spirit as the fount or source of this growth and holiness and moral transformation, as incremental as it seems sometimes to come. No, too often in human history, the pursuit of holiness has been fueled from man's own resources from within, which doesn't ever turn out so well. Recent accounts of the Taliban holiness, for example, testify to the futility of human-fueled efforts in achieving this level of spirituality. But as we Christians ourselves know and are at times guilty of, this man-centered movement toward holiness is not limited to any one religion. Case in point, in today's gospel lesson, we encounter another example of this vain effort on the part of man to make himself holy. This example goes back to the time of our Lord's earthly ministry. 2,000 years ago, some things never change. In this account, verse 1 says, Some Pharisees and scribes who had come down from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. And what you need to know right off the bat is that these are not just any scribes and Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees throughout Israel in those days were known as experts in law-keeping. They were the bean counters of holy living. But these recent arrivals were not just any scribes and Pharisees. Mark is careful to point out here that these scribes and Pharisees came down from Jerusalem. Ooh. Whereas scribes and Pharisees in general would count their footsteps on the Sabbath, for example, so as not to walk so far as to constitute work, these scribes and Pharisees of the Jerusalem variety were the kind who would count even half steps and perhaps even blow the whistle on you for shuffling your feet, okay? Like a zealous NBA ref, they were quick to call foul or traveling violation whenever they witnessed a misstep in holy living. They arrive on the scene in northern Galilee where Jesus had created quite a stir by virtue of all the signs and wonders he was performing, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead. As you would imagine, word of Jesus spread throughout the land and large crowds were beginning to follow him, wondering, could this be the Messiah? 
most recently in Mark's gospel, a massive crowd, probably in the tens of thousands when you count the women and children, were blessed by Jesus' miracle of the so-called feeding of the 5,000 from just five loaves and two fish. And guess what? All those hungry hillside picnickers probably did not ceremonially wash properly according to the scribes' prescribed specs prior to partaking of that miraculous feast. Foul, cry the Jerusalem Pharisees as they blow the whistle, not so much on the crowd, okay, but on Jesus' disciples, whom any rabbi knows take their cues from their own rabbi who trains them and coaches them. And so the Jerusalem Pharisees come after Jesus and question him about, quote, not keeping the tradition of the elders, with the unspoken text being, how could we seriously ever consider you a viable candidate for Messiah if you don't even keep the tradition of the elders? Now at this point, couple of observations are in order. First of all, did they miss the part about 5,000 plus being fed by only two fish and five loaves? I mean, come on. At some point, you have to begin to realize, hey, maybe God is not so obsessed with or restricted by the regimentation of water drops dripping off of your elbows in the proper washing ritual. But lest we rush in to judge too quickly or judge too harshly. Interestingly, Mark also records back in chapter 6 that Jesus' own disciples missed the meaning of the miracle as well. The text says that, quote, they had not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened, unquote. These were Peter, James, and John and the gang. Ooh, Hard hearts cross denominational lines, don't they? Certainly not into Lutheran territory. Say it is not so. Thou dost protest too much, methinks. What are first century Jews, Lutherans, the Taliban, Presbyterians, and millennials all have in common? Answer, the human heart and a heart condition. And that's not a cheery condition either, where all hearts are harmoniously joined together as one happy human family. No. At least that's not how Jesus portrays it later on in Mark 7. In next week's lesson, actually, Jesus will flesh out what is meant by hardened hearts, and he's going to use such not-so-flattering terms as evil, sexually immoral, murderous, greedy, deceitful, arrogant and foolish. That's just a partial listing. Stay tuned next week for the full flattering litany. Now we sometimes use the expression, God knows my heart, as an excuse for falling short. But that's not the comforting refuge that our foolish hearts might believe it to be at first. It's really rather a scary prospect, isn't it? That God can see past the masks we put on before other people, and he can peer straight into the dark thoughts and intents of our hidden hearts. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it, bemoans Jeremiah the prophet. 
The universal flood recorded way back in Genesis 6 reminds us of the universal condition of the human heart, where it says, God looked around and saw that every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. Genesis 6.5. Try as we might, we may for a time anyway be able to put one over on one another, momentarily masking our apathy, our self-interest, but we cannot hide what lurks in our hearts from God's all-seeing eye. Speaking of masking, it would be hard not to address the elephant in the room on this first weekend back with mask mandates. No doubt you've heard by now how public indoor mask requirements are reinstated in Ventura and in more than half the counties in California. Now this already regrettably has breathed new life into the divisive debate on whether to mask or not to mask as Christians. You see, as perhaps you've also heard, mask mandates are issued indoors for all public venues except, quote, places of worship. That's right. Where they say masks are highly recommended. Now, in some ways, and I'm not saying that I agree with this necessarily, but it would have made things easier if they had just called for a mask mandate everywhere with no exceptions. Of course, they already tried that, didn't they, and ran into constitutional grounds for objections. So it gets complicated. Say, Pastor Mike, it's not so complicated, says one person representing one end of the spectrum of the debate. It's simple, really. This fellow continues, they, the government, cannot constitutionally impose this restriction on our freedom of worship. Therefore, we are free to finally enjoy Mass Creek Fellowship here in church like in no other public place besides. Everybody knows no mask can stop this invisible virus. Go maskless. That's one point of view that I've certainly heard expressed. But then the next person in line chimes in and says, yes, it is quite simple. Christians are supposed to submit to the governing authorities, and we are our brother's keeper. It's the loving thing to do to wear a mask, even if it and only the smallest way helps prevent the spread of this life-threatening virus. Simple enough, wear a mask. So now, where do you fall in that debate? And I can kind of tell. (laughs) But that's a rhetorical question. If ever I asked one, I really do not wish to know everybody's position on the matter. Pastors, and I might venture to guess, politicians to some extent as well, get caught in the middle of this war. We hear it from every side. People complain on the one hand that we were not really trusting God if we ask everyone to mask. We are behaving cowardly. But then on the other extreme, you have complaints that we tempt the Lord God by even meeting at all in person during a pandemic. That is, if there is the smallest chance at all that someone vaccinated or unvaccinated might contract the virus at church of all places, we are acting recklessly irresponsible in the eyes of God and all people who care. 
And so, as this debate rages on, and if we let him, Satan, Satan, whose name means accuser, will tear apart from both ends our unity in the body of Christ, like a tattered face mask that has been used and discarded. And he will do so in the name of religion. He deceives both factions into believing only they are acting righteously and other people are just... Perhaps you can fill in the blank if you've ever found yourself going down these judgmental lines of thought. We point our fingers at one another and literally play the devil's advocate as we accuse our brother, as we accuse our sister of compromising our Christian values in one way or the other. There's got to be a better way forward for the church whom St. Paul directs to, quote, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Ephesians 4.3. The answer to this situation always involves returning to the Word of God, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In Jesus, we see the Word of God incarnate. What would Jesus do? Jesus, if he encountered anyone with COVID, if that person had faith, I believe Jesus, in a heartbeat, would heal that person by spitting on them. Well, I'm not sure about the spitting, but that is indeed what he does back in Mark chapter 7 with the deaf man that's brought to him. It doesn't sound very hygienic, does it? But Jesus spits on his own fingers and touches the mute man's mouth, and Jesus then gives him essentially what is a wet willy by sticking his fingers in his ears, and in doing so, heals both the man's speech and his hearing. Then in the very next chapter of Mark, we see Jesus spitting again in a blind man's eyes to heal his sight. So would Jesus mask or not mask? I can't answer that. And I think there are bigger questions to ask. I'm still wondering, for example, why didn't Jesus spit in the face of those annoying Pharisees for raising their misguided, petty questions of religiosity in the midst of all the wondrous miracles Jesus was performing for all the hungry and the hurting? Jesus has a whole lot more patience and forbearance than I do, that's for sure. These religionists, with their add-on laws, were more holy than God himself. Jesus may not have spat at them, but he does come back at the Jerusalem scribes with equal if not greater force. They ask, why do your disciples eat with defiled hands? And Jesus essentially comes back with, who told you that your hearts were not defiled? Because they are. The ironic thing was that, as Mark explains, these religious leaders (laughs) baptized everything in sight which is the Greek word baptizo, used for washed, and all their ceremonial washings listed there in verse 4. They baptized their cups and pots and copper vessels and even their dining couches. I doubt doubt that was full immersion baptism. (laughs) They could cleanse everything, but they could not cleanse their own 
hypocritical hearts. They themselves were blinded by their own self-righteousness. They could not see what was their greatest need for cleansing. Even the repentant King David testifies against them from Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So that was the irony. The tragedy was also their blindness. They came down from Jerusalem and were gathered around the only one on earth who could cleanse them from all their unrighteousness, forgive them of all their sins and make them truly holy and sanctified before the Lord God Almighty. These scribes and Pharisees were standing right in front of the one who had already cleansed the leper, exercised the demoniac, and forgiven the sins of the quadriplegic man who was now healthy and walking in the faith that he had that day he was healed by Jesus when he was lowered before Jesus from the housetop. But these scribes and Pharisees would never lower themselves before Jesus. And that's tragic. Because as Mark already pointed out, even Jesus' own disciples can have hard hearts. But Mark the Evangelist wants us disciples today to know that Jesus is the king of all hearts. He lived the perfectly clean, righteous life. He came into this room with his own pure heart. He lived before God without flaw, flawless, in order to redeem hardened hearts by his innocent suffering and death. He himself endured being spat upon and mocked and crucified and was buried to pray, pay the price of redemption for sinners the world over whose hearts had gone astray. Now, by being baptized in his name, the risen Christ offers us a new heart to replace our heart of stone. He offers us a clean start in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out. St. Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. God sees you as wearing Christ now. So as the church, even before we consider putting on our face masks, let us consider Paul's word to the church at Colossae. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you. Colossians 3.12. Now, that, that might not end every last question on the debate of to mask or not to mask, but what a wonderful place to start. Amen. And now may he who began a good work in you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.